Well, I, I this morning listened to the audio of, of Chad's teaching, and so uh, unfortunately this, this week you got me instead. So he did a fantastic job of giving you the background, uh, both from the New Testament and the Old Testament, and walking you through the, the, the purposes behind the Abrahamic covenant. Um, tonight we're going to actually just go through the three uh, times that the Abrahamic covenant is, is spoken. Uh, we're going to look at the mechanics of it and the, the specifics of it. And then next week, we'll look at the implications of it. Um, throughout church history, the Abrahamic Covenant has been picked apart. I, I, there, I have an entire book that is the uh, four, in a very pur- Puritan way, it's the four ways that, that Abraham's seed uh, run throughout the, the, the Bible. And we will look at, at that and we will look at... Um, just the way that uh, the consequences of this, I think I mentioned the other night, I had a professor at seminary that said that the promise of the Bible is Genesis 12, 1 through 3, and the rest of the Bible is a commentary on that statement. It cannot be stressed too much that this is a pivotal moment in redemptive history. It is often referred to by Jesus uh, as Chad pointed out, by Mary, it's referred to by Paul. Uh, this is a, something that we have to understand if we really want to understand redemptive history and the way that, that God didn't just wake up one day rubbing his hands together and go, oh no, what are we going to do? That from the beginning, that this was the plan. And the plan started uh, in Genesis 12 when the Lord said to Abram, and as Chad pointed out last week, Abraham wasn't a particularly awesome person at this time. In Joshua, we read that Abraham was an idol worshiper, that Abraham was just like Abram was just like everybody else. He was just going along. It was God who turned his heart. It was God who called him. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. Now, for us, moving... Uh, for some of us, that, that isn't a huge deal. I mean, for somebody like my parents, that would be a massive deal because all the junk that they have in their house would be such an unbelievable pain to move that it's just not even fathomable. But um, for most of us, the idea of if, if work were to come in tomorrow and tell you, okay, you've got to, you have no choice to matter, you've got to move to Miami, you would go, this stinks, this is a, a, a pain, but it's not that big a deal. In this Near Eastern culture, Wealth was defined by how many critters you owned, how many people you had that you owned, how many slaves you had, and the land that you kept. That was how wealth was defined. And so God is telling Abram here to put everything that, he, that, that is his security on the line to follow me. This isn't just... Written a U-Haul, throwing your stuff in the back of it, and going. This is taking everything that you own, all the people that are associated with you, and having to go on a journey. And you notice that God doesn't tell him where. He just says, go to where I'm going to tell you to go. And I, and I don't know about you, but it seems like that's kind of the way God has always moved in my life. That we don't see the big picture We just see that there has to be obedience. And as we obey, as we move forward, more and more and more is shown to us 
I had no idea when we were, we were sitting in Turkey that I was going to be the pastor at North Lincoln Baptist Church. No idea that that was going to happen. I had no idea that God was going to allow me to go to the mission field while I was going to seminary. I thought that was a door that God had long ago closed. So each step of obedience that I took, God then chose to reveal part of it. And sometimes, I don't know about you, but for me, that's frustrating. I really want God to say, now, come here, now, let me walk you through what's going to happen for the next 30 years. So this is going to happen, and then I'm going to provide here. It's okay. It's going to get a little tight, but I'm going to take care of you. And this is going to happen, and this is going to happen. Well, God doesn't do that to Abram in the beginning. He just says, get up, get your stuff, and go to where I'm telling you to go. He makes a promise. Go from your country, and I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families (coughs) of the earth shall be blessed. Now this is a massive prayer. Abram is just a guy. He's not a king. He's not from some royal line. He's not, as you all know from from studying world history, that in in these days, all, all the way up until, you know, in some countries yesterday, or today, uh, kingship, honor, greatness is based entirely on who your daddy was. In fact, I, I got a little frustrated with my countrymen and my own family for all of the excitement that flowed around about the um, Meghan Merkel wedding. Was I the only one that was watching all, all, all the Americans flip out about that and saying Hey, we threw tea into the Boston Harbor so that we didn't have to put up with this stupidity. But in this culture, it was even more so. If you were born to a sheep herder, you were going to be a sheep herder. And so God is not only telling Abram here that I'm going to bless you, that you're going to get more stuff, but he's like, I'm going to make of you many, many, a multitude of nations. And that God himself is saying, if somebody curses you, I'm going to curse them. Apologetically, I would say that this promise fulfillment is one of the clearest indicators of something you can see and touch and feel that proves that the Bible is true. My uh, stepfather-in-law is Jewish. He's a Jew. I've never met a Hittite. Have you? I've never met an Amorite. Never met a Cadmonite. Don't even know of any Jebusites or Kenites or Pezzarites. God said, I'm going to make of you a nation, and I will be the one who sustains you. And they weren't a great nation. At this time, the nation was exactly two people when God made this promise. And yet, today, that nation is still alive and well. God does what he says he's going to do. Somehow, and, and this is just a, this is an aside, this is completely for free. Somehow, in the white nationalism movement, Jews have become the bad guy. 
which has always blown my mind how people use the Bible to justify white nationalism. I had someone in this church who came to me because there was a, a, an African-American young man in the church youth group who was dating a, a girl who's a white girl here, and uh, he felt like that that was wrong, that that was unbiblical. And I asked him, why, why do you, you keep saying it's unbiblical? I mean, I get that maybe you don't like it, but you keep saying it's unbiblical. Where, where are you getting that? And the first verse that he turned to to show me that was where the Bible says, be not unequally yoked. And he stopped there. And I'm like, well, you've got to finish the phrase with an unbeliever. And then the second thing that he used to prove his point was all the verses in the Old Testament that said that God's chosen people. And I said, dude, that ain't you. That's the Jews. The people you don't like. And if you can... And I said this from the pulpit. If you can take verses about a people group that is predicting, that is celebrating, that is singing praises to a brown-skinned, brown-eyed, brown-haired man and somehow twist that to suggest that those of us that are melanin deficient are God's chosen people, you're a special kind of stupid. That's not what it's saying. When these verses about God's chosen people were written, your people were running around in the woods in Germany eating each other. You're the Gentiles. You're the ones that the Jews are told to stay away from. So please don't try that. I mean, you can believe what you want to. If you want to say you don't like black people, Mexican people, say it. Believe it. But you can't use God's word to back it up. If you want to be that way, be that way. I don't care, but I'm not going to let you say that God's Word teaches it, because it doesn't. The Jews are the people that God chose. Now, the reason why God chose those people, the New Testament makes painfully clear, is that the prophecy that God would bless all the earth, that blessing came through Jesus. The point of the Old Testament, starting in Genesis 1-1, God is preparing a land for His people. And here we get God choosing His people from Abram. Not a large tribe, not a rich man. He takes them and He sends them and then He blesses them and then He shepherds them. And he, he, the, that, that promise that I'm going to bless the earth, it starts all the way back in the garden. gets narrower and narrower and narrower. At first, Abram... Uh, Eve is told from your seed, which we're all from Eve's seed, every one of us. First, it starts big, and now it narrows down a little bit. It's going to come from the Jewish people. Later, and we'll see with the Davidic covenant, it gets narrowed down to a specific line within that, that group. And then it gets all the way down to a little baby born in the backwater of this country that God prepared and that was how God broke into human history. And that's the point. That's the point of God's story. It's because the, the maximum amount of people could be exposed to the gospel so that we can be grafted into the root of Abraham. That we can be, and we'll see next week, one of those groups that says, you are the true seed of Abraham because you have fallen on the name of a son. So... In this first 
iteration of the covenant, we see that God is saying, in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And we talked some, as we talked about the Noetic covenant, of people who don't claim Christ are blessed because of what God does here. The Christians being salt and light on this world has had an impact on how the world does things. We talked about how it's unnatural for humanity to, to think that every human being has value. And yet it's not common at, uncommon at all to turn on MSNBC and someone that claims to be uh, an atheist to say, well, that person, you can't treat them that way. Well, that whole idea that a person has value comes from the fact that God said, I made man in my image. That's had a massive impact on this earth. The, when Jesus broke into human history, just about every culture on this earth believed and taught and acted as if women were property. In fact, when we were, we were in Turkey, I, as I was trying to learn the culture, I had two or three people say, never try to shake hands with a, a Muslim woman because if you do, it will disrespect her husband because he owns her. And so you're disrespecting him if you try to shake her hand and touch her because he, she is her, his property. His daughters are his property until they get married, which is why there's a dowry involved. Someone's buying property. If we look at the way that Jesus treated women with respect, the way that Paul lays out the ecclesiology of the church, where women are commanded to teach where women are told, when you pray in public, be sure to do these things. That has had an impact that's rolled across Western history. That didn't just come out of the air. That's a legacy that came from the impact that ultimately started here when God interrupted human history to say to Abraham, get up and go. So it's continued in Genesis 15. We read this. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land. So in the beginning, he said, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make of you in a nation. And now in the second one, he gives them the land. From the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. So you have a map here. So from the Nile all the way over to the Euphrates, which is up in the upper right-hand corner, all of that land is what's given in the, in the covenant. The land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Pezzarites, the Raphaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. Now, there's an interesting thing about this promise. It's never been realized. The Jews call this, and there's actually a Hebrew phrase for it, the land of promise. It's promised all the way from the Nile, all the way over to the Euphrates. They have never occupied all that land. At no point in Jewish history that we know of from the Bible and from history have they ever occupied all that land. But we can read in the book of Revelation when there will be someone who sits on the throne of David, 
when this promise will be realized. But as Chad pointed out, when this promise was given, Abraham didn't have no land. He was wandering around in the woods. So, the second part is to deal with the land that the, the Jews would occupy. Now, in Genesis 17, when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face, and God said, And behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be a father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not your offspring. So here God says kind of restatement of the first two times that he said it, and then he added, and here's what you're going to do. So, in specific terms, it became the covenant here, the, the first two iterations in Genesis 12 and Genesis 15, did not have any stipulations. It was just, this is what I'm going to do. And now, Abram is told that he has to do something. Now, we spent three months in the book of Galatians, looking deeply at why these things were so. This is a shadow of something to come. And I think that one of the the many reasons for circumcision being chosen is to set God's people apart and make them different. It was very important to God that His people were different. And they knew that they were different. They were followers of God Almighty, and He was their God, and they were His people. We're still supposed to be different. One of my favorite things to do when I did it last week, and I did it when we were in Dallas, when we were exposed to strange cultures. I always try to find a time when the kids are looking particularly um, confused and disoriented and said, Did you feel comfortable did you feel comfortable when they were giving you this weird food that you didn't know what it was and you were drinking tea that, that tasted funny and you were expected to drink it? Did, did you feel like as comfortable as you would in your own living room? No, of course not. I think there's a theology throughout the Bible of going because that 
uncomfortable feeling should remind us that this world is not our home. When we lived in Colombia, it became clear that um, the way that that culture worked in Cartagena, the city that we lived in, was that the, the lower caste, it was, wasn't really a caste, but it was understood, the, the people who did the day labor and the people who, 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 who did jobs that were menial had very dark skin. Uh, in fact, they had a name for them. They were Costeña. They were the coastal people. And they were kind of looked down on. And then the more upper-class people that came from more Spanish descent um, had, had paler skin. And so we showed up, and all of a sudden, Anne was the queen of Cartagena because there was nobody that had paler skin than she did. And we could walk into a restaurant, and literally the buzz that you hear in a restaurant would go silent. And you would hear silverware hit the floor, and you'd hear baby cry in the corner like Megamon. It was... And everybody would turn and just stare at us. And we would go sit down. And it didn't matter how good our language skills got. It didn't, no matter, it didn't matter how well we understood the culture. It was clear to everybody, from mannerisms to turns of phrase, that that wasn't our home. One of the things that, that Ann and I like to make fun of watching TV shows is that they'll take some American dude and put him in the Middle East and everybody just accepts that he's walking around on the streets. He'll have his ball cap on so you can't see the blonde hair. But all the people, all the vendors and everything are just acting like, well, this is just normal. And we laugh about that because we know for a fact that doesn't happen. I could walk through a bazaar in Turkey and shut it down. I would either have 50 little kids follow me going, I want a dollar. Can I have a dollar? Can you give me a dollar? Because they assume that all Americans are rich. Or I would have, go up to vend, a vending place, and if they didn't particularly like Americans, they would completely ignore me. I'd be like, hey, how much are you asking for your peaches? In Turkish, of course, and they would look at me and just act like I wasn't there. Because that wasn't my home. No matter how good my Turkish got, no matter how much I loved the food, no matter how well I understood the culture, everywhere I went, everybody knew this guy doesn't belong here. Do you see where I'm headed with this? This world ain't our home. And yes, there are lots of times when things happen where we say, Maranatha, Lord, come quickly. I'm so ready to be done with this. That is for sure. But there are also lots of times when we feel just fine here. And whenever we do, we need to check our heart. What is it that you're living for? And so we need to be careful. We need to guard our heart against that. And so here, God gives His children that... Okay, <coughs> this is the second time I've done that. God gives His children the, the gift of circumcision to remind them that they're different than everybody else. We have several restatements of the covenant. Once again to, to Abraham, after he, um, out of faith, went to, uh, was willing to kill his son, God said to him, By myself I have dis- I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven and as the sand that's on the seashore. And your offspring 
shall possess the gate of his enemies, and in your offspring shall the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. To Isaac he said, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven, and will give to your offspring all these lands. And in your offspring all the nations of the earth shall be blessed, because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commands, my statutes, and my laws. And to Jacob it was said, And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall the families of the earth be blessed. So we have this covenant restated. We have this covenant restated, as Chad pointed out last week, throughout the New Testament. God choosing His people shows us much about His character, that God's the one who calls. God's the one who chooses. It shows us how He works in human history. It shows us that He cares. Some of the most shocking words written in the Bible are Hebrews 1.1, God spoke. Realize he didn't have to. You know, I've used this as an example before, but if you think about it, much of the world's religion is an attempt to understand God. The, there's the, 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 the little um, thing that we saw in cartoons when we were kids where the, all the natives take a Virginian and throw her into the volcano to, to satisfy the volcano gods. And, and I've read stories of people groups throughout human history that, that wondered, what do we have to do to propitiate the rain god so that it would rain so our crops would grow? What do we have to do so that the, the, the rain god would cease being angry so the flooding will stop? What do we have to do to understand God? And God knew that we wouldn't get it. That on our own, we couldn't understand Him. If you read the stories of the Greek and Roman gods, they're just like us. They're capricious. They're petty. You read about what they do and, and go, Oh, I am so thankful that these gods aren't real. Because they're constantly messing with people and playing silly games. God wanted us to understand he didn't just leave it up to Abram to start doing some stuff. You read over and over. Now the Lord said to Abram, On that day the Lord made a covenant with Abraham saying, When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, That is shocking information. That the God that created us loved us enough where he was willing to break into human history, open his mouth and speak. We are not ignorant to what we should do. We are not ignorant to how he acts. We have it. it if, if you ever just get some free time, read a book like um, God's Secretaries, which talks about how the Bible went from the Tyndall translation to the King James translation. 
Or how many times the, that some king or principality has said, I'm going to make it my role to destroy the Bible. How religion, in the name of Christianity, has sought to take the Bible out of the plowman's hand. And yet over and over and over and over again, God makes sure that His people has His Word. It is miraculous. Just the other day, in some scrolls that were actually found in the early 1900s, was found the oldest surviving words uh, from the New Testament, from around 90 A.D., words from Mark. And they are identical to the words that you have in your lap. Amen. And I believe, and I think that as a Christian, all of us believe, that if we could somehow go back in time, as Tychicus is taking one of those scrolls to the church, it looked just like what we got today. God has protected His Word. That's amazing. That is miraculous. And we... Ignore it at our peril. All right. So, like I said, we, I just wanted to go take tonight and go over the, the specifics of the covenant. And then next week, I want us to look at the implications and look at how God has used this covenant throughout the, the, the New Testament uh, and how we are of the house and lineage of, of um, Abraham. Next week. We will not have this class because it's VBS, so the next week we will. And you know I can't keep up with the calendar. So I thought we could end it by singing, Father Abraham, how many sons, how many sons have Father Abraham. Do you remember that? I am one of them, and so are you. I love it when my kids were singing that song, just about every one of them, I can remember them saying, hey, wait, what does that mean? which is a great opportunity to share the gospel with, with the kids.